0: Assalamu alaykum. My name is Dawood Sarfraz. This is Muslim World in Focus. In 1921, after the British and Allied victory in World War I and the subsequent Paris Peace Conference, another major conference was held in Cairo, Egypt, to determine the political future of the Middle East. My guest today is Dr. Brad Fott, whose latest book titled Cairo 1921, 10 Days That Made the Middle East, provides an in-depth narrative of the events leading up to during and immediately after the British-sponsored conference. Dr. Fott is a professor and chair at the Department of History and Global Studies at Tyndale University in Toronto, Canada. Dr. Fott, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you.
1: It's uh, a real privilege and pleasure to be here.
0: Dr. Fat, I, I want to begin by saying uh, that I really enjoyed reading this book. Um, I I, re- I really like the way in which you weaved in the historical events with the firsthand accounts of some of the key figures through their letters and personal writings. During the depths of World War I, the, the British, they were desperate for some type of victory, right? So the prime minister at the time, He appoints General Allenby as the Commander-in-Chief of this Egyptian Expeditionary Force, and he sends them to the Middle East to, as he says, deliver Jerusalem as a gift to the nation. And and Allenby does achieve major victories for the British over the Ottoman territories, not only defeating the Ottoman armies in Palestine, but pushing them back through Transjordan and Syria as well. At the same time that this is going on, you write about uh, the Arab nationalist uprising against the Ottomans that was being supported by the British. Uh, Darfad, I want to ask you, how important was the Arab uprising to the overall British war plan in the Middle East? Do you think the victories that Allenby achieved uh, would have been the same without that uprising?
1: That is a question that historians and military officers and politicians asked at the time, and certainly historians have continued to ask that all the way down to today. How vital was the Arab revolt to the Egyptian expeditionary force, uh, some historians come down on the side that the Arab revolt was a kind of sideshow. And even at the time, it was termed that way. Some historians uh, argue differently, that the Arab revolt uh, turned out to be a small but key event in the overall geostrategy of the British uh, in the Middle East from from 1916 until the end of the war i tend to fall into the to the camp that sees the arab revolt as an important even even key event not necessarily so much for what it achieved in the field although it did achieve quite a bit in the field uh, particularly its campaign uh, against uh, the ottoman railway that ran uh, right the way through today's Jordan and into uh, modern-day Arabia. So I, I, see, I see the campaign as, as being uh, important and even vital in that way. It was, it was small, and certainly when Allenby was sent out there uh, in the summer of 1917, he'd just come back from the Western Front. Uh, he'd had a falling out with, with General Haig, who was commander-in-chief. Uh, he was at a rather low point uh, in, in his life and in his career, and going going to the Middle East uh, would reinvigorate him. Uh, It would reinvigorate him in command. It would set him up for diplomatic career, in fact, as High Commissioner, British High Commissioner to Egypt uh, beginning in 1919. Uh, So so for Allenby, uh, when he arrives, he is looking to strike soon. He's looking to strike hard. He's looking for this victory that you you alluded to. Yes, David Lloyd George uh, present me with Jerusalem, present the British people with Jerusalem as a Christmas gift. Uh, because remember, in, in 19, uh, 1917, the Allied fortunes in the war had not yet turned. And so Lloyd George was, was looking essentially for some good news. And remember, the the, the mythology of the Middle East, all, all the way back to the Crusading era, r- remains resonant. Uh, with, with a lot of people in Britain, a lot of people in Europe, particularly in France. So the idea of, of specifically uh, winning Jerusalem uh, ca- carried a lot of, of weight, uh, a lot of symbolism. So to do that, to do that, uh, Allenby will rely not heavily on the Arab revolt, but in some key ways. Uh, and that, of course, is, is how Lawrence enters his life.
0: T. Lawrence. Yeah. And, and Dr. Fahd, you talk about the uh, Arab nationalism. On, on the flip side, I want to ask you, do you think the Arab uh, nationalist movements would have been able to revolt or would have decided to revolt if it wasn't for British financial and military support through Lawrence and through others? Yeah, a,
1: a really important question in, in a few different ways. Arab nationalism probably would have found its head Uh, at some point in the near future, but the involvement of the British from 1915 onward uh, really telescoped the matter. When the British began to engage directly, for example, with uh, Sharif Hussain and the Hashemites, that really began to to put wartime Arab nationalism uh, into focus and into gear. Yes, the money mattered and the equipment mattered, but clearly by 1915 and then into 1916, uh, when the revolt broke out uh, in the middle of 1916, uh, the, the leading uh, Hashemite Arabs saw in what they were going to attempt to do, a means to achieve Arab nationalism, uh, however understood and, and however displayed, uh, whether that was just going to be in the Hejaz Uh, in western arabia whether it was going to be further afield whether it was going to be all the way up into syria uh whether it was going to be uh down into mesopotamia and so forth just just how large that would be and and what form it would take and who the leadership would be comprised of and all those sorts of questions uh were open questions uh but but the spur uh the spur to actualize arab nationalism uh seems to be pretty clearly linked to the way in which the British wanted to help sponsor it. In this double-edged way, for their own purposes, as well as for the aspirations of of Arab nationalism. At this itself.
0: time, Dr. Fahd, you write about the different major British policies that were advanced almost kind of simultaneously, the first being um, the one with the Hashemite, uh, ruling the dynasty, the McMahon and Hussein correspondence, uh, but also the Sykes-Picot Agreement and the Balfour Declaration. Therefore, could you speak maybe quickly about each of these, what what they were, but also if you can touch a little bit about. Uh, because you talk about in the book, and it obviously was part of the the, the history at that time as well, that they were somewhat conflicting policies, promising different things to different people. Uh, just wondering why, how could something conflicting like this be advanced at the same time? Right.
1: Well, as as with the foreign affairs of most great states, uh, uh, there's a lot of busyness in the foreign office at this point in time, and in the colonial office, uh, and so uh, and in the war office. Uh, and, and sometimes the policies can be understood to be contradictory or even at, even at, at blatant cross purposes, but they, they grow out of uh, the circumstances and history of the moment. So the McMahon-Hussain correspondence uh, was a series of, of 10 letters, a decalogue of letters that went back and forth between McMahon, who was the high commissioner to Egypt at that point in time, 1915, and uh, Sharif Hussain of the Hashemite dynasty. And McMahon, at at the behest really of the Secretary of War at that point in time, Lord Kitchener, uh, who would die before most of this came to pass. But earlier, he had begun to think seriously about the prospects uh, for Britain in the Middle East, should the Arabs come in on the side of the Allies. So under his direction, McMahon opened up a correspondence with Sharif Hussain. Over a series of months, a series of letters were exchanged about what the British were thinking, what they might be offering, what, what the Sharif was thinking, what he might be able to offer. And they essentially came to an agreement. And the agreement wasn't totally clear, as these things often go. And it wasn't a treaty, uh, but, but it was an understanding that if the Hashemite Arabs in the Hejaz came into the war on the side of the British, then the quid pro quo for that would be some species of support for Arab independence after the war. Geopolitical independence. So by the time they had they had concluded their correspondence uh, in 1916, uh, Hussein was committed to a desert rising and he kicked it off himself. Apparently he literally fired the first shot uh, at the Ottoman garrison, um, which is is rather symbolic and even even mythic. So as far back as 1915-16, there was an understanding that the Arab revolt would lead to some kind of British-supported independence. But these are complicated matters. So at the same time, almost, that this was going on, there were Anglo-French discussions over, again, what the Middle East, and the Middle East was a new term, it was only being used really, right right then, what the Middle East would look like after the war in terms of great power interests.
0: These discussions would culminate into the Sykes-Picot Agreement, named after the two British and French aristocrats that advanced the agreement. This agreement was an attempt between the British and French, who both had geopolitical interests in the region, to divide the Middle East between their spheres of influence. The Sykes-Picot Agreement would become another piece of the complex puzzle shaping in the Middle East. But there was one more agreement that further complicated the situation.
1: And then the third, the third piece of the puzzle uh, was the Balfour Declaration uh, that was promulgated in the fall of 1917. And the Balfour Declaration was the culmination of decades of interest by various people in the British government, in British society, uh, in leading British Zionists and so forth, to, to sponsor some kind of uh, return to Palestine uh, by uh, diasporic Jews. And the Balfour Declaration uh, promised a national homeland within Palestine. It didn't promise a, a Jewish state uh, as such. It uh, promised a homeland. All kinds of complications around that, and so forth. But but these three these three policies, as it were, and as you mentioned earlier, Dawood, they they can be seen sometimes at cross purposes. Churchill, and we'll probably talk about him more later. Churchill, uh, certainly as Colonial Secretary and even beforehand, would argue that these three policies were policies that. Could be made to work together as a kind of middle East concert that the British could make right all of these policies concurrently as it were uh, in the middle east and that's to some extent of course what what will drive the conference in nineteen twenty
0: one you mentioned Thomas Edward Lawrence who you know famously becomes known as Lawrence of Arabia he's Definitely a very interesting person in, in modern history. I, I actually was introduced to uh, Lawrence when I was quite young. Um, I think I was about eight or nine years old when my dad brought home that 1962 movie, Lawrence of Arabia, the British epic uh, historical drama. I'm sure maybe you've seen that as well. But I know the book is not about Lawrence in particular, but, uh, but he features quite prominently given his role. And you do mention a little bit of a, his early life. I wanted to ask you, Dr. Fodd, how someone like Lawrence can go uh, from where he was, you know, born in Wales, interested in the Crusades, travels around France, Middle East, gets into archaeology, but at the end becomes this great uh, champion of Arab nationalism. And as you say, the most influential British representative in the Middle East. How does that transformation mm-hmm. happen?
1: Well, you're right. La- Lawrence is an arresting figure. His, his appeal uh, seems seems unending. Uh, Lots of biographies, lots of studies uh, of Lawrence. And yes, the 1962 David Lean film uh, is is a true epic. Lawrence becomes a thoroughgoing archaeologist. And if not for the war, that that may very well have been his life. He's scholarly. He's a loner. uh, He's self-sufficient. He likes to test himself, he's extraordinarily independently minded uh, and and his his entry into archaeology comes comes as a student. Initially he's interested in in the crusading era, he's interested in uh, the architectural heritage, the crusading era architectural heritage uh, that exists between Europe and the Middle East, particularly between France and Syria and Palestine. Uh, He goes out as a student uh, and and he will walk from the top of Syria to the bottom, 1,000 miles, sketching crusader era castles and so forth. He writes his thesis at Oxford on on the topic, crusader castles. Uh, so, So he's a thoroughgoing embryonic archaeologist who then is given a position on a dig at Carchemish in northern Syria under the auspices of, of initially the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford.
0: While in the Middle East, Lawrence immerses himself in the local culture, makes friends in important positions, and acquires a strong command of the Arabic language. His skills and intelligence are quickly recognized, and as the world falls into a global conflict, his expertise and experience become important to the British war effort.
1: And as war comes closer and closer, and it's clear that if war comes and when it comes, the Ottomans are going to come into the war and it's likely they'll come into the war on the Axis side. And then what will that mean for the British position in the Middle East? Uh, He's, he's right there. Now he's young. He's, he's not, he's not uh, a military officer. He, he makes for a rather unusual uh, and sort of resistant military officer uh, in some, some obvious ways. But, but as, soon as, as soon as war breaks out, uh, Lawrence finds that his expertise and the expertise of others who have been who have been on archaeological digs or who have been in a kind of military advisory role in the Middle East, uh, that kind of person is immediately pulled in uh, by the war office. And Lawrence is one of them. Lawrence is one of them. And he's sent off to Cairo uh, as part of what was called the Arab Bureau, uh, British intelligence in the Middle East, essentially. And he's he's given a, a desk job and he's he's pretty bored by this because he he's beginning to now think that there's something at hand that... Uh, could could result in uh, an Arab rising that might lead to a uh, full-blown uh, Arab nationalist movement that might lead in turn to Arab independence. And it's it's really in Cairo uh, in, in uh, 1915 and then into 1916 that this becomes clear for Lawrence. but he's, he's highly sympathetic. To Arab aspirations, he he's enamored of Arab society. He's enamored of Arab culture, the language. Uh, he makes good friends amongst uh, a number of, of Arabs at uh, at uh, to begin with, for example. So he's poised, as it were, uh, by by the time war breaks out, he's poised to be drawn into it uh, uh, very quickly, and and.
0: And directly, yeah, and you actually uh, mentioned even before uh heading to the to the bureau in in cairo he he was sent on a mission as an intelligence officer for under the guise of an archaeology dig to um, map out i think it was the transjordan Syria region and stuff like that, so Definitely, definitely very interesting figure. I, I'm sure we can talk a lot. As you said, a lot has been written about him and a lot can be said. But at the same time, I, I want to speak to somebody else who features prominently in your book, uh, again, due to his role at that time, Dr. Fott, and that's uh, Winston Churchill himself. Um, you write about uh, Churchill's support for Zionism. Uh, you, you mentioned in a meeting with President Dwight Eisenhower, he explains, I'm of course a Zionist and have ever since been the since the Balfour Declaration. Um, But also at the same time, he was insistent on this Palestine-Arab-Jewish accommodation that could be achieved. He was, it seemed, I mean, at least from the book that he was the only one that had this type of expansive way. I mean, the prime minister himself, his friend Lloyd George, did not. Others, Wiseman and others from the Zionist organization uh, did not. So how did he develop such a contradicting idea in comparison to the others,
1: I think with with Churchill, he, in in an, ob, I suppose, in a very obvious way, he was he was a career politician. He's a he's a career political fixer. He he believes that that there is a solution to to every political problem, no matter how intransigent the problem might appear to be. Uh, he believed in his own ability to. Find and enforce solutions to uh, intractable political problems, and I think I think that was another one. Uh, that that uh, the the attempt to to create uh, an accommodationist pluralist uh, mandate in Palestine, leading uh, leading to uh, independent statehood. Was something that he believed was was politically possible, and you're right. Not a lot of other people, uh, not a lot of other people, believed it in the same way, or or saw it nuanced in the way that that he did. Uh, and in other parts of of uh, the British Empire, or in or in places where where the British uh, the British imperial interest was was clear. Uh, you can see him take up uh, a different tack. But, but Churchill had, had seen himself at sort of being at this task for a very long time, uh, from, from the era of, of the Boer War, uh, the South African War, uh, through, through the First World War, uh, the question over, over Ireland that will come to a head in December of 1921, uh examples elsewhere in the british empire where sort of ancient enmities had been overcome in some kind of practical political settlement uh, uh, so so he 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 believed that that the kind of deep animosities that marked uh the relationship between arab and jew uh, could be overcome and and it's not i don't think much more complicated than that uh, for for Churchill in his thinking I mean it's a complicated historical situation of course but in his own mind it, it's an achievable political outcome uh, if if you construct the situation in the right way uh, and the right people are in the right positions uh, attempting to pull it off uh, that that's why he was so committed to to uh, a pluralist uh pluralist palestine but that's why he was also so committed to to king making in in mesopotamia or iraq uh and in jordan these these are are political problems that he thinks can be achieved uh, politically in retrospect uh, heavily debated as we know violently so at times Uh, but in the moment in the moment uh he he thinks these are soluble politically
0: and as you say, in retrospect, um, you quote uh, Roger Lewis, the great uh, British imperial historian, having said that Palestine was the greatest failure in the whole British, well, in the whole history of British imperial rule. And and actually, you mentioned yourself also at one point in the book, Dr. Fahd, that from 1917 onwards, unwavering support for the Balfour Declaration had committed Britain to a course of action that could end only in disaster for Palestine Arabs. Um, so so I, I understand how. Churchill, maybe his view is unique. There's people who, uh, such as the Prime Minister and and, and Wiseman and others uh, in London that didn't have his view uh, of... uh, But at the same time, there's others who... You know, I found interesting reading your book, Dr. Fata, that the British representatives who are on the ground uh, in the Middle East, such as Alan B., Lawrence, Gertrude Bell, who also is a prominent uh, character at that time, they seem to have a more, if I can say, critical view of Zionist aspirations uh, and, and the British policy to establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine, uh, Palestine than their political peers back in London. And they actually would write about the you know potential negative effects it would have on the local Arabs, on regional stability, and so on and so forth. Do you think, I mean, I don't know if better is the right word or a different outcome could have been achieved uh, if the policymakers in London gave greater weight to the advice of these experts on the ground
1: yeah it's it's one of those ineffable historical questions uh, the, the so-called what if question though uh churchill's position was clearly a minority position but churchill uh, as as a member of cabinet as a high profile politician uh as a great persuader uh, was hard to resist so you're absolutely right to say a lot of people around Churchill were were much more sympathetic to the arab position uh, and that position being being essentially essentially uh, highly critical uh, of the British attempt to do what they were attempting to do through a more narrow reading of the Balfour Declaration, uh, in, in Palestine. But, but, uh, and Churchill had people on his staff, uh, sort of right, right, right in the belly of the beast, as it were, who, who represented these, these divergent views, uh, and, and, and over and above that, the, the larger sort of settled view of someone like Gertrude Bell. Lawrence, uh, uh, also falls into this category uh, so so could it have gone differently I mean if uh, th- these are these are such impossible questions to answer in in a way uh, Churchill himself by by later in 1921 by 1922 he he uh, ceases being colonial secretary later in 1922 by that point in time uh, he's become enormously frustrated uh, with what the British are attempting to do because he sees, uh, people on the ground in in Jerusalem and in Palestine being unable to square this political circle so Sir Herbert Samuel for example the, the British High Commissioner uh, in Jerusalem at that point in time uh, is is not unlike Churchill in his thinking there's some there's some areas in which they they saw this attempt in in the same way but they're both increasingly frustrated that they just do not seem to be able to move Palestine towards this pluralist end. And, and by the time Churchill leaves the colonial office, it, it's, it's clear that, that whatever the outcome is in Palestine, it's, it's not going to be the outcome that he thought was politically achievable uh, unless, unless something really changes in the internal dynamic within Palestine itself. Uh, and, and he moves on as it were, I mean, he's a career politician, he moves on. Um, but, but, uh, his aspirations, uh, uh are, are clear in the moment, um, uh, not only in Palestine, of course, but through the, the Sharifian solution as, as it had been enunciated by the Middle East department, uh. Pertaining to Mesopotamia in the first instance, and then Transjordan.
0: You, you just touched upon the Sharifian uh, solution, um, something that uh, you said maybe have been coined by Churchill himself, that, the term. But uh, could you speak a little about what the Sharifian solution was? But also, if you could speak, uh, Dr. Fat, to the the fact that while the British were supporting the the Hashemite dynasty through the Sharifian solution, at the same time. They were also supporting another major player in the area at that time, which is Ibn Saud, both mm-hmm. uh, through military support uh, somewhat and definitely through subsidies. Uh, mm-hmm. At one point in your book, you mentioned the devastating stating rate that some of Ibn Saud's um, Ikhwan do in Iraq and how it angers Faisal, who's there, and and then the mm-hmm. British reluctance to go after him with the the, the RAF, the Royal Air Force. Were the British hedging their bets in the Middle East? For
1: the British and for for Churchill, in particular, the Middle East Department, uh, Lawrence and Bell, the Sharifian solution was conceived as a way of uh, state building, post-war, post-Ottoman state building, as well as to uh, secure, at least in the shorter term, uh british interests with an accommodating uh arab dynasty uh that that's that's sort of the two pronged approach to to what they attempt to do so that's sort of the 1921 scenario but it, it really only grows out of what was unachieved in the first world war so the fact that the, that the hashemites are, are privileged uh, from the standpoint of the British, is because uh, because the Hashemites have worked with the British all the way back to 1915, and and seem to be certainly Faisal uh, is is willing to continue to work with the British to achieve uh, Arab statehood. Yes, the subsidies to to Ibn Saud will continue. the The threat posed by Saud towards the Hashemites themselves, as well as towards a certain kind of of British Hashemite hegemony in the region are real, uh, and Saud will will continue to uh, consolidate his position and and very uh, very soon thereafter, 1924, 1925, Saud will become a kind of principal power broker uh, in Arabia. Uh, But for the British, as they have always done in imperial situations, there's, there's, a long, there's a long literature in, in British uh, imperial history that talks about uh, collaboration. I know that, that term since the Second World War has, has been essentially understood in a pejorative way, but of attempting to collaborate with local actors to achieve what is, what is usually both ends that serve those local actors and ends that serve British interests. So, so here, here we see, we see that uh, continue with the British uh, and the Hashemites and Faisal, uh, because of his leading position in, in the revolt and because of his personal relationship with Lawrence and, and the mutual trust that they had and, and the great weight that Churchill put on Lawrence's opinions. Gertrude uh, Bell also uh, but but especially on Lawrence. Remember, the first thing that, that Churchill does when he when he uh, uh, takes up the, the position of the colonial office is is hire Lawrence uh, as as his chief advisor, uh, and and Lawrence and others are are already committed to the Sharifian solution, uh, which will monarchize uh, in the first instance Faisal, and then and then his uh, brother. Abdullah.
0: I definitely enjoyed reading this book, Dr. Fahd. As you say, uh, uh, it's a very timely book, uh, almost 100 years, a little over 100 years after the conference. So I highly recommend anybody who has uh, wants to get a bit more understanding in, in, of the, the conference itself and what, what led up to the conference and what happened after the conference to pick up this book. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Fahd.
1: Thank you, Dawood. It's, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Muslim World in Focus. For the latest updates, you can follow us on Twitter at Muslim Focus and on Instagram at Muslim World in Focus. For any questions, you can email us at Muslim World in Focus at gmail.com. Until next time, Assalamualaikum.